0: Welcome to the Three Creeks Church Podcast. We're a church in Gahanna, Ohio that exists to help people find and follow God. We hope this message encourages you, challenges you, and helps you discover how much God really loves you. Whiteboard Joel's back, baby. Here we go. A lot of good feedback last time. All right. (laughs) If you thought that Adeline and Ryan doing the books of the Bible was cute, th- today's message will be the opposite. Man, it, uh, I had to stop reading in Second Kings this week and close my eyes and, and go, is this, is this really what happened? I would propose that if your kids have never tried out Three Creeks Kids before, today would be the day because this is uh, rated R for violence, and it is a little jarring. And I said this last week, I should say it again, I, I try to make it a habit to not skip passages of the Bible that make me uncomfortable. Today is one of those that you, at first, at first pass through, you go, what is this saying? Did this really happen? And what does it mean? That really is the question that we have to ask, no matter what you read in the Bible, is is. is why is this in here? What is God saying? And and here's the truth about today's message, today's story. It's that uh, it really happened, and it illuminates a characteristic of God, something that's true about God. You, You read it, and you go, man, this feels like a graphic history novel. But it is deeply theological. And if we if we if we read into that and we we look at what this tells us about God, there's no way, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, this, that this doesn't make you think at a minimum and change your life if you take it for what it is. So, Second Kings, this is week seven. We're making our way through First and Second Kings. And we're just going through it and saying, everybody's saying it, is there ever going to be a good king? Because so far, it's been bad king after bad king down and to the right. The trajectory is not good. And there's a good king, and we're going to talk about him a little bit today. Were you here two weeks ago? If you weren't, let me give you a 30-second recap. And also, you can go to Spotify or YouTube and catch up. I think it would, uh, it maybe would help some of this make some more sense, but two weeks ago... We talked about a king, and his name was Ahab. And what we said about Ahab was that he was the worst. And the Bible actually says that he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any king before him. He was married to an evil woman named Jezebel. And they together ruled the north, the the kingdom known as Israel. The north and the south had split. There's a 200-year civil war going on. Ahab's the king of the north. He marries Jezebel. And two weeks ago, we talked about how they built this second vacation palace in the, in the beautiful valley of Jezreel. And the, Ahab looked over the fence of his palace and saw Naboth's vineyard, a vineyard that had been passed on to Naboth from his ancestors and Ahab and Jezebel frame Naboth for something that he didn't do. And he's stoned and his children are stoned so that Naboth, by law, can take his neighbor's vineyard. And the, the last verse that we read two weeks ago was this. It, says, it said, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, he got up and went down to take possession of Naboth's vineyard. So he, he's walking around the vineyard. And if you remember the way that we spent enough time in that story to feel it, when I explained that Naboth, this the next day, is just walking around his stolen vineyard where Naboth and his all of his kids had just been killed, there's this something inside of us that goes, man, that's just not right. Where is the justice? Is he going to get away with this? Evil, corrupt Ahab, the king, is walking around this stolen land and Jezebel, his wife, is up in the palace just going like an evil laugh just thinking that she had been victorious again, furthering their evil regime. But the story didn't end there. And maybe I should have told you that then, but I'm telling it to you now. This is what happens next. In case you were wondering if there was ever justice for this offense. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, go down to meet Ahab of Israel, who rules in Samaria. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it, and say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? And then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood, Ahab. Yes, yours. He goes on to say, I will wipe out your descendants and cut off Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. You will not have an heir. Take over your throne, Ahab. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. God says this offense will not go unpunished. Justice is coming. And Ahab, for a moment, for a moment, surprises me. He, he repents. He's humble. He's meek. He tears his clothes. He fasts as a, an act of surrender. And, and God, in, in, a, in a moment of mercy towards Ahab, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, the Tishbite. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring the disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. So let me summarize. This is, this is what the, Lord, the word of the Lord through Elijah said. This is what God said he's going to do. Dogs will lick, lick up Ahab's blood in the same place that dogs licked up the blood of Naboth. God's not going to do it right now to Ahab, but to his son. God will wipe out all of Ahab's descendants and potential heirs to his throne. And God, or excuse me, dogs will eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. This is what God said he's going to do. And this was in 856 B.C. 856 B.C. So Ahab and Jezebel, they do have a son, and his name is Joram. And Joram takes over after Ahab dies. He's the next king of the north. Judah's king over in the south over here. His name is pretty close to Joram. It's Jehoram. Jehoram's reign is not long. He's a weak king. One of the things about his reign is that he starts losing a bunch of land to some of these opposing kings. He just gives up. He's another wet potato chip of a man, as I've used the term before. Here's an interesting fact. So Ahab and Jezebel, they're married, right? They have a daughter, they have lots of kids, at least Ahab does, but they together have a daughter named Athalia. And Athaliah, um, make sure I get this right, yeah, Athalia and Jehoram unbelievably get married. And so the two fighting kings are now brothers-in-law of the north and the south. They seem to, I don't know if it's a political move or they really like each other, but they get married. Jehoram's reign isn't long, it's only eight years, and they have a son, and his name is Ahaziah. And here's what you need to know about Ahaziah. He only reigned for one year. It's the first thing you find out about him when you read it, and you're going to figure out why he only reigned for one year right now. So Hazael, the king of Aram, a neighboring country, is threatening both the north and the south. And so wouldn't you know it, Ahaziah and Joram put aside their political, historical differences, and these guys unite, and they form, I don't know what to do, so I did a a sword. They form an army. (laughs) They form an army to fight Hazael, the king of the Aramites. And uh, it's kind of like Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee mid-Civil War being like, hey, Canada is going to kind of come after both of us. Why don't we unite the troops? It's, it, it's actually what happens. And they fight against Hazael in the Battle of Ramoth-Gilead. You can read about it. Second Kings chapters 8, 9, and 10. The Battle of Ramoth-Gilead. And in the Battle of Ramoth-Gilead... Our man Joram is injured. And they take Joram back to that palace in Jezreel, the vacation home that Ahab and Jezebel had built. They take him back there. And then this is what it says. It says, then Ahaziah, king of the south, king of Judah, went down to Jezreel to see Joram, son of Ahab, because he had been wounded. This is the last verse of 2 Kings chapter 8. And the reason it's in there is it's, it's, a, it's to make you go, ah, it feels like disaster's coming. Because if a bomb goes off now in Jezreel, somebody can take them both out. It, it reminds you, I don't know if you know the story, Operation Russell sprung in World War II. Churchill, Roosevelt, and Stalin, the three leaders of the allied forces in World War II got together in the same place in Tehran. And there was an assassination attempt from the Germans that was thwarted. They, they figured it out before somebody could go take all three of them out. But, but when, every, when they were getting together, everybody's going, why are you putting these three leaders in the same spot? Well, that assassination plot was thwarted. It would have changed the world in a lot of ways. Well, this assassination plot that you're about to read about in Second Kings chapter 9, it will not be thwarted. Someone is about to be successful and taking both of them out. Check this out. So 842 BC, 14 years after Elijah had told Ahab, you're going to go down. This is not going to go unpunished. 842 BC, 14 years after he stole the vineyard. Elisha, we talked about him last week. He's leading a company of prophets. This is step one. And God doing what he said he's going to do. Gets with his prophets and he says, hey, we're going to anoint a new king for the north. It's not going to be Joram anymore. We're going to anoint. this is only the, this is the first king since Solomon that has been anointed by God. Every king since Solomon all the way to Ahab has taken over because they're the son of the king or they launch a coup. But this next king is, is, an, is anointed by God. So, so Elijah sends a prophet to Ramoth-Gilead to find a man named Jehu, who I think was probably fighting in Ahab's Israelite army. He's, a, he's known. He's not some low rank guy. Jehu has a reputation. And the prophet goes to Ramoth-Gilead and anoints Jehu. So Jehu comes in, and he's this new, claims to be the new king of the north. And because Elisha's voice carries weight, when Jehu is anointed by Elisha and Elisha's prophet friend, he comes out of the room and says, guys, I didn't do this to myself, but I've been anointed the king of Israel. And the people respond and they go, Jehu is king. Long live King Jehu. Well, Jehu is a man of action. He has a reputation and he is true to it. Jehu, this is what it says about him. He, uh, he starts driving towards Jezreel. Joram is resting, recovering from his injury. Ahaziah has gone over to make sure he knows he's not alone, I guess. They're both in Jezreel. They're both in the vacation palace that Ahab and Jezebel built. And our man Jehu is driving his chariot with his men towards Jezreel. And so Joram says, hey, who's that out there? Why is there somebody coming from a distance? So he sends a servant out and the servant says, hey... What's going on out here? Do you come in peace? That's the question he asks. Do you come in peace? And Jehu says, what do you know about peace? He says, fall in line. Joram sends out another servant. Hey, do you come in peace? Jehu says, what do you know about peace? Get in line. And these servants of Joram start filling, backfilling Jehu. And, and this is actually what it says. They're looking out over the edge of the palace wall and it says in 2 Kings chapter 9 that The driving is like that of Jehu, son of Nimshi. He drives like a maniac. They know it's Jehu. So Joram and Ahaziah, they go out to meet him. Hitch up my chariot, Joram ordered. And when it was hitched up, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, rode out each in his own chariot to meet Jehu. They met him at the plot of ground that had belonged to Naboth, the Jezreelite. You smelling what I'm stepping in here? When Joram saw Jehu, he asked, have you come in peace, Jehu? How can there be peace, Jehu replied, as long as all the idolatry and witchcraft witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. Justice is about to be served, Joram. He brings up Jezebel, Ahab's evil wife. They had lots of kids. Ahab had many wives, many kids. We're going to read about them in a minute. Joram is one of the kids. His veins pulse with Ahab's blood and DNA. And because Ahab and Jezebel had Athaliah, who married Jehoram, Ahaziah's blood pulses with the blood and the DNA of King Ahab, who God said, I will eliminate your line. Well, Joram knows about these promises, and so his only option is to flee. And Jehu draws a bow and sends an arrow through Joram's heart, and he falls over in his chariot. And when he dies, Jehu says, take that man's body and go put it in the land that Naboth used to own, in the vineyard. Because remember what God said 14 years earlier. This is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. And Ahab's blood in the veins of his son Joram was licked up by the dogs. And this is what we need to know. What we need to know is that God always does what he says he's going to do. He always does it. What happens to Ahaziah? He tries to flee. He is wounded. He dies in the place that he escapes, and he's buried in Jerusalem. So the king of the south is dead, and the king of the north, at least Joram, is dead. And the process of Ahab's descendants being eliminated has begun. After putting Joram's body in Naboth's vineyard, Jehu isn't done. Jezebel is still alive. And so Jehu rides all the way into Jezreel and rides up to the palace, and Jezebel yells out a window. She thinks she's protected. And she says, do you come in peace? And he says, what do you know about peace? And, and, and Jezebel has the audacity, she goes, she calls him Zimri. And you probably don't know what that means, but that would be like, for all my football fans in the room, that would be calling somebody who just entered the NFL draft Ryan Leaf. This is an insult. You don't want to be called Zimri. Zimri was the king for seven days. And so Jezebel's saying, hey, Zimri, you come in peace. She's essentially saying, you think just because you killed Joram and you killed Ahaziah, you think this reign is going to last? And Jehu yells up to the window. He says, is anybody up in that room with me? And two of the servants of the queen Jezebel push her out the window. And she falls on her head and she dies. And Jehu doesn't even stop. He just walks in the palace and begins having a feast with all of the palace attendants. And while his feet are up on the table and he's sipping his drink, he says, hey, somebody go out there and take care of that cursed woman. And they go out there and they, all they can find of her body is her bones and her hands and her feet. Because 14 years earlier, God said, also concerning Jezebel, the Lord says, dogs will devour Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. Once again... God always does what he says he's going to do. You think it's graphic so far? You ready? Then Jehu goes to Samaria, another important city, the capital of the north. Jezreel is a vacation home. Now he goes to the real home, the real palace. Samaria is fortified. There's walls. Guess how many of Ahab's sons, royal princes, potential heirs to the throne live in Samaria? Seventy. He has 70 sons living in Samaria. And so when Jehu and his army go up, these people have heard about what's happened in Jezreel, of course. He goes up and he says, hey, y'all can anoint a king in there. As soon as you do, the war will begin. And they say, all the people that shout over the wall, we don't want anything to do with you. So is there another option? And Jehu says, by the morning... I need 70 heads of the sons of Ahab. And they say, you got it. And they gather all 70 potential heirs to the throne that pulse with Ahab's DNA and blood. And they kill him. And they present these 70 heads to Jehu the next morning. Because it said 14 years earlier, I will wipe out your descendants, Ahab. I will cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. God always does what he says he's going to do. And Jehu declares this, he says, know then that not a word the Lord has spoken against the house of Ahab will fail. Second Kings chapter 10 is is a story that continues where Ahab continues to wipe out Ahab's descendants and, and people that follow Baal, which is the God that Ahab served. It's hard to read and it really happened. Jehu actually tore down, this is in the Bible, he tore down a statue of Baal and told his entire army that it was now the place for them to go to the bathroom. He said, Go and pee there on the statue of Baal that has fallen. I got I to show you this too. So back over here, Jehoram, the south, he's a descendant of King David. The the kings of Judah down here in the south, they're all descendants of King David. And Jehoram is here. So he has Ahaziah who's supposed to keep the line. Now remember, hundreds of years before, God had promised that David's descendants would always rule God's people. That there would always be a king in the line of David. And even though Jehoram is a bad king, and even though he marries Ahab's daughter, and even though his son Ahaziah is killed by Jehu, God has to keep a descendant over here because God always does what he says he's going to do. So it begs the question, did Jehoram have any other kids? Good news, he did. He had a lot of other kids. But the problem is that when he's dead, and when he's dead, she, evil daughter of Ahab, this is true. She goes and tries to kill all of his kids and one of their daughters hid 1-year-old Joash in her room in a closet for 6 years so many kids she didn't even know that she didn't kill them all one of them Joash in the line of David when he's 7 years old is brought before the people and and they say Joash is the true heir to the throne. And Joash becomes the king. It says he's a good king. He does what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He's the king for 40 years. He has a son named Amaziah. This is the cool part. You ready? And Amaziah's great, 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 great grandson is our man, Jesus Christ, who is the king over God's people today. In the line of David, still ruling. That's amazing how God miraculously preserved that line. God always does what He says He's going to do. So what does this teach us about God? It's that God always does what He says He's going to do. It happened, it was recorded, and I'm sharing it with you to remind you that God always does what He says He's going to do. This is where it turns on us. This is a historical story. This is where it gets very theological and important for us. God saw Ahab and Jezebel in their sin. And he said, this will not go unpunished. Someone has to pay for this. He says, I am just. Sin requires payment. Somebody has to pay for this. And in the same way, friends, when God sees us in our sin, it's easy for us to think, bad guys, good guys. But if you're anything like me, you know deep inside we're not all just good guys. God sees us in our sin, our selfishness, our pride, our greed, our covetousness. Every time we try to make ourselves the little G God of our own lives, every time we sin, God has the same response to us. He says, this will not go unpunished. Somebody has to pay for this. And Romans 6, 23 couldn't make it any more clear. Paul wrote to the Romans, he says, the wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment that is required if you sin is physical and spiritual death. James, the half-brother of Jesus, talks about how temptation gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. The payment is death, and if that doesn't cause you concern, if it doesn't cause your ears to perk up, you're not seeing sin like God does. If you look at your own greed or your own pride or your own selfishness and go, ah, I'm working on it, how you feel about your sin is not how God feels about your sin. It causes Him to recoil. He is vehemently opposed to our sin as opposed to our sin as he was to Ahab and Jezebel's sin. The wages of sin is death. Whether you're a church person or not, you, you just, it's hard to disagree with a statement that every one of us has sinned. And it's easy, it's easy to kind of want to distance ourselves from the really bad people, but the bottom line is that we've all sinned. We've all fall short of the glory of God. And somebody has to pay for it. And Romans 5, 8 says this, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is such an important verse right here. First John 2, 2. If you don't know this one, let it sink into your bones. It says that he, Jesus Christ, is the, and I'm going to explain this in case you don't know what it means. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. In other words, sin has to be paid for. And Jesus paid for it if we choose to believe in him. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, and was the only person who didn't deserve to die. But he went to the cross And he died, and he paid the price for us for our sins. And it's been covered, it's been paid for if we believe in Jesus. This story, this text, all of this. It's a warning and it's a it's a hey, God's not messing around, and he provides a way back to him. It's a get right with God. Story. God is being so patient with us. God says our sins need to be paid for, and we can either pay them ourselves or we can let Jesus pay for them for us. But the truth is that God is going to do what He said He's going to do. If we do not put our faith in Jesus, if we reject Him and say, This is bananas. This is folklore. Who cares? You're making this up. This isn't really real. If we choose to go that route, this is what 1 Thessalonians 1 says. It says, The Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He's going to come back. He said he would, and he always does what he says he's going to do. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord. This is not the only passage in the Bible that talks about it. Seventy times Jesus brings up the eternal separation between God and us if we don't repent and turn to him. Seventy times. God always says, always does what he said he's going to do. Jehu... Jehu, this guy right here, he comes in. He comes in to bring justice as an avenger, to punish evil. He is mad with zeal. The Bible says he's mad with zeal for the honor of the Lord. And Jesus, in the same way, is going to bring justice. He is zealous for the honor of the Lord, he is going to punish evil. This is what it says that it will be like when Jesus comes back. And just a heads up, it is different than wavy haired, lamb holding Jesus, the one that we like who is nice to his neighbors. This is different. He's coming back differently with the same character but a different approach. This is what it says in Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and he wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. Jesus isn't jacking around. He's the King of Kings and He's the Lord of Lords, and the Bible says that every single knee, whether it wants to or not, is going to bow and say, and every tongue is going to confess, Jesus is the Lord. Everybody's going to say it, and this is this is my takeaway. This is Joel Trainer's takeaway. He's either going to forgive my sins because He said that He would, or He's going to punish me for my sins because He said that He would. He said He's going to do both of those things, and the difference the difference, is whether or not I believe in Jesus and I repent of my sin and I say, I can't do this on my own, I need your help. And in that case, He's going to do what He said He's going to do. He's going to come and forgive me for all of my unrighteousness. He's going he's to swoop me up and take me to heaven. But on the other side, if I choose to reject this, he's going to do what he said he's going to do. And it, it forces us to answer these questions. You can't read this and not answer these questions. Have you, as a person, have you put your faith in this king named Jesus? Has he forgiven your sins? Because he said he would, and he always does what he said he's going to do. Friends, the time, the the message of this text, the message of this story is that it's time to get right with God. And if you've never made a decision to put your faith in Jesus, today's the day. Today is the day to put your faith in the King of kings and the Lord of lords because God is going to do what he said he's going to do. He always does. It's true to who he is. He can't not be faithful to it. He's a just God. And in his great mercy, he says, hey, if you want to receive what I did, man, it's going to go pretty well for you. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave you with a few minutes to consider this. I'm going to take the whiteboard off. The lights are going to come down. Our prayer team is going to be in the back and available to pray with anybody and if today's the day that you say, for the first time or again, I need to get right with the Lord, I, I, need, I need to get right with God, I really think He's the King, then I, I would implore you, today's the day, to go back and chat with somebody and just, you just open up the conversation, you say, hey, I need to get right with God and, and have a conversation and let, this, let these people pray over you. God is always—he's always done what He said He's going to do, and He's always going to. It's true to who He is. I'll let that—I'll uh, let that sit. Thanks for listening to the Three Creeks Church podcast. To find out more about our church, to give online, or to attend a service, visit threecreekschurch.com.